having a conversation about priorities and that there is throughout history, I'm, 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 I know Edwards said it, but even before Jonathan Edwards said it, uh, Zinzendorf with the Moravians was observing that every, every, um, mo every kingdom movement you know, resets, you know, the Israel and Judah had the prophets come up and say, oh, what you were doing is not good. We need to reset. We need to go back. This is what God says. These are the priorities. And then you see that happen through history. And then, then the, um, then the, the movement becomes, you know, becomes an institution, which isn't necessarily bad if the institution continues to serve the principles and priorities of the movement. It's good, but then they become culturally compromised they get hardened, they get ossified, they forget the priorities, and then another group comes up and says, wait a minute, and you can see it, you can see it, dot history uh, throughout. And you know, I, I do sense, and I'm not the only one who's seeing this, but I do sense that we're in a moment of serious reflection. It, it, it's a global moment of like what is the priority of the church? There are things that are happening. There's always been wars and rumors of wars, you know. Uh, there's a, children have always been dis disobedient to their parents, but there's something significant happening globally uh, where a lot is being so destabilized that there's a, 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 a significant number of people who are in the kingdom, in the church saying, what is our priority? What are we supposed to be here for? What is the what is the function of the church? What is unique in our perspective, our understanding, our offering of the hope that Jesus that only Jesus Christ can bring? What is unique about our position now? If God is sovereign over everything, then he's sovereign over our our geographic placement, our our chronological placement, all of our lives would have looked really different if this was 1823. But we're here at 2023 with this particular set of cultural dynamics. So there's this, there's this. I, I don't know if I would call it an awakening. I don't know, but it's a lot of people in the wake for the West in particular, for the American church in particular, there's a lot of people saying in the midst of the church being having her faults exposed, uh, some of them it was good that some of that stuff has been dragged into the light in the last 20 years. But in the midst of the church being caught in the light, stuff exposed, people are saying, where's that reset button? Where's that New Testament button? What are we supposed to be doing? What's our priority? What's the kingdom priority? And so how do we get un? twisted. I, I totally, man, I was, I was going to throw my fan at you <laughs> across this room. You saying that, Randy, sparked this question to me. Everybody who listens to this is going to have been twisted in some ways by the idols in their hearts. One of the ones I see the most as a pastor is people dealing with shame. That's a, you know, a hot topic now. It's a buzzword of sorts, but you know, the shame, you've heard it probably defined as, as guilt is something you feel, I've done this and, and I know it's wrong, whereas shame is, I've done something wrong and everybody knows it. Um, how, how would y'all, if somebody came to you, how would you counsel somebody dealing with shame that, that it's, it's going to show itself in a multitude of different pathologies in their lives? But if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I, I just can't get over to the this sense that I am not enough, I am, 
a failure. I am, uh, I have deep regrets and I just don't see any way out. Might be a non-Christian or a Christian. What, what would you say to somebody from the gospel who's coming to you with that question? I remember one time I was with your husband. My husband? Yes, Karen, and um, the state penitentiary of Louisiana, known as Angola. What did you do, Randy? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I was Carl coming to see you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carl and I were both there uh, uh, on behalf of Chuck Colson Prison Fellowship to do an in-prison seminar. And Angola had a guest house, and they put us up for the week. And for those of you who are listening and don't know about Angola, it was absolutely one of the worst prisons in the world. And it was like, it wasn't just one prison. It was like a huge landscape of about five different prisons. You could look off at night and see the lights from each of the satellite prisons over this huge landscape. And it was a plantation. And uh, the prisoners were put out on the plantation every day. Uh, you had uh, uh, guards on horseback with shotguns to oversee them. Um, and people were sent there, and they would die there. I mean, it would life sentences, horrible, horrible crimes. And I was at the uh, guest house uh, after teaching all day, and they, they even had an inmate do our cooking for us, you know. So it was, it was very southern. And uh, in walks this other man, and uh, he sat down at the dining room table with me, and, and we introduced each other, ourselves to each other, and he said, I'm a psychiatrist. And, oh, and uh, he said, uh, the prison called me because there's a man who attempted suicide, and they brought me in to try to help him. And, and he said, the man um, had been on drugs, he had been on speed, and he killed his only daughter while he was high and he said he's so full of shame that he wants to kill himself and then the psychiatrist said this if I had done that I want to kill myself too and I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking how are you going to help him you know and I don't know why and this by the way this story um, I wrote the report sent it, and they, Chuck Colson put it in a book called Life Sentence but I asked the psychiatrist, I said, do you believe in grace? And man, it was like I had smacked him in the face. And he just stopped. And he said, I do. And it was like it was the answer he had been searching for, but he didn't know how to articulate. And to me, the only solution to shame is grace. And it's unfathomable. There is nothing like it in the entire universe. I cannot fix the nasty things I have done. I can't fix them. I have memories of them. I like to avoid them. They're embarrassing because they're shameful. If anybody finds out about them, it goes from shame to disgrace. And often people who are public and commit, uh, especially sexual crimes, if they commit child uh, sexual abuse, if they're a banker, a, a clergy member or something, 
they have to put them on suicide watch because the shame is so intense. They are now disgraced from the shame. And the only way out, in my opinion, is to come to this amazing <laughs> realization that God is not surprised with how wicked you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I paid the price for it. I um, remember, um, I, you know, as a speaker, a public speaker, and, you know, had been in radio, and I had carried the shame of being a post-abortive woman uh, and terrified that somebody would find out as a public figure. And then I was invited by the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission <laughs> to speak on a national platform at their pro-life conference. And uh, after decades of carrying this and, you know, being afraid of being exposed, the Lord said, all right, let's take control of this narrative. <laughs> you have an opportunity here. And I counseled with um, a, oh gosh, a wonderful pastor named John Ensor, who runs Passion Life in Atlanta. And he uh, ministers to uh, post-abortive women, and he's the, he's the guy who goes to countries and rescues babies. And, uh, you know, he brought me a word that he said, you know, when you receive God's mercy and his grace, um, he takes that and then he weaponizes it for his kingdom because the people at the end of the story, how do they overcome? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And it's not the testimony of all the horrible things that we've done. It's the testimony of how God redeemed them. The depth to which he went to, to wipe that slate clean. That for me was a huge trigger. It's like, oh my goodness, this is now a spiritual weapon. And, you know, people said, oh, you're going to step on my, my prayer partners. They're like, you're going to step on that platform. You're going to be so free. I was already free before I stepped on because I had embraced that truth and the reality that when he said it was finished, it was enough to cover the depth of my depravity. It's the only thing deeper than my own depravity. First Takes is produced by First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Our theme music was written and recorded by Wes Breedlove. Our sound engineer is me, Dylan Thomas. Our host is Dr. Gabriel Fleur. S.K. Van Pufflin is our executive producer. And for more information about First Presbyterian or our ministries here, visit our website at 1stpresbyterian.com. <laughs>